And our final scholar of the day is Renee Fox. Renee grew up in Los Angeles, California, and did her undergraduate work at Stanford University, where she majored in English and creative writing. She worked as a technical writer in the Silicon Valley for several years after college, although she always su suspected she'd land back in academia. Finally ostracized by her electrical engineering co-workers for the large cardboard vampire adorning her Silicon Valley cubicle, she fled east in 2003 to begin her PhD in English at Princeton, where we've allowed her to transform her gothic decorative taste into a dissertation on reanimated corpses. Her research interests include 19th century monster fiction, Victorian poetry, 20th century Irish poetry and drama, and Victorian popular culture. A handout is going around that accompanies her talk, so please do let us know if you don't have one. Uh, otherwise, please join me in welcoming Renee Fox. Like, like my fellow my fellow scholars, I want to thank the Alumni Association for inviting us here today. Um, and I just want to say that it's been fabulous hearing both of your presentations. It's very rare that graduate students get to hear what people in other departments are working on. So this has been a true pleasure for me. Um, and I'm going to begin my own presentation here with one of my first observations when I began studying 19th century literature. And that is that Victorian literature in particular is littered with corpses. They float to the surface of almost every Dickens novel. They tap on the window of Bronte novels. They become beautiful works of art in the poetry of Robert Browning. They must be grotesquely exhumed in order to retrieve Dante Gabriel Rossetti's lost poems. And by the end of the century, they've taken to walking the streets of London, Dublin, and beyond, leaving trails of blood in their wake. And while critics across the humanities have written incessantly about the 19th century dead, They've only skimmed over what seems to me to be the most important characteristic of the corpse in Victorian literature, its inability to stay dead. Whether through narrative, or science, or technology, or often, sometimes, or often indeed by supernatural means, the Victorian dead keep coming back to life, forcing us to recognize that as much as death obsessed the Victorians, so too did the idea of reanimation. The possibility, in Robert, Browning, in Robert Browning's words, that something dead may get to live again. The idea of reanimation inspired critical debates across the humanities in the 19th century. History, art, science, anthropology, religion, and literature all saw in the body return to life both a pinnacle of intellectual achievement and a grotesque ethical failure, both an ideal triumph over death and a corrupt imitation of life. My dissertation suggests that the reanimated corpse in Victorian literature, whether in the form of a monster, or an art object, or simply a living corpse, originates at the intersection of multiple disciplines striving to preserve and create relics of the past in order to ensure an ideal, if impossible, future. I argue that the literary impulse to reanimate the dead emerges as an engagement with and a resistance to the Victorian's sense of history itself as a resuscitative practice, a discipline, in the words of one 19th century historian, that could, quote, recreate words, recreate worlds, excuse me, out of the loose, chaotic elements furnished by chronicles and bards. Or the historian's desire, in the words of another, to, quote, give life to dead men, to resuscitate them. More specifically, 
I argue that the reanimated body becomes a figure for the aesthetic and ethical problem this resuscitative historical sensibility poses. Can what is vanished, past, lost, ever be recuperated in a work of art? And at what point does the desire for aesthetic recuperation, the desire, to quote Browning again, to save the thing, become a violence perpetrated upon the imagination rather than a revitalization of it? The novels, short stories, and poems that I address use the reanimated body, or the almost alive again body, as a model for both the possibility and the limitations of generating art out of historical relics. In The Progress of Beauty, and this is the first quote on your handout, Jonathan Swift's wonderfully satirical 1719 poem about the power of art to transform the commonplace into something transcendent. Art finally runs up against one incontrovertible limitation. But art can no longer, but art can, I'm sorry, but art no longer can prevail when the materials are gone. The best mechanic hand must fail where nothing's left to work upon. Art, form, the so-called mechanic of beauty, can't make itself out of nothing. Without a foundation of matter, Swift's poem insists, there can be no such thing as art. Without materials, no possibility for the creation of aesthetic pleasure. Swift's solution to this terrible problem, we learn as the poem continues, is a constant influx of new young nymphs to doll up in all the accoutrements of feminine beauty. Out with the old, in with the new, the poem seems to say. But the old can never simply vanish. And beneath Swift's flippant misogyny lays an essential question about the origins of modern art. How can a work of art form and reform itself out of the remnants of the past? The idea that art and creativity had to originate in a foundation of materials crops up again and again in 19th century discussions of artistic production, although rarely with Swift's flippancy. For several important Victorian writers, art was no more, and no less, than a project of reanimating the dead. Mary Shelley, perhaps most famously, in her introduction to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein, and this is the next quote on your handout, writes that invention does not consist in creating out of void, but out of chaos. The materials must, in the first place, be afforded. It can give form to dark, shapeless substances, but cannot bring into being the substance itself. Invention consists in the capacity of seizing on the capabilities of a subject, and in the power of molding and fashioning ideas suggested to it. The deep ambivalence Shelley felt about creativity as a galvanism of chaotic parts lives on in what she equally, equally ambivalently called her hideous progeny in the persistent literary and cinematic reanimation of her legendary monster. But Shelley wasn't the only one to understand art's greatest power and greatest limitation as its galvanic capacity to raise the dead. Robert Browning's 1869 poem, The Ring in the Book, posits poetry itself as a mimicry of God's creative power, capable of reanimating, as he says, a rag of flesh, a scrap of bone in dim disuse, but not capable of creating life out of nothing. And this is the last quote of your handout. So find, so fill full, so appropriate forms, that although nothing which had never life shall get life from him, be not having been, yet something dead may get to live again, something with too much life or not enough, which either way imperfect ended once. 
an end whereat man's impulse intervenes, makes new beginning, starts the dead alive, completes the incomplete, and saves the thing. I'm going to just focus on this last line for a moment, this line that says, completes the incomplete and saves the thing. To the extent that the dead in this very long poem, not only an actual corpse, but a history of Renaissance murder, a history of a particular Renaissance murder, that the poem is trying to retell, the project of art, the project of reanimation, has the potential to be recuperative, to rescue a lost story, to bridge centuries and allow the past to live again as a complete object, no more and no less than a living work of art. Yet for Browning, as well as for Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and W.B. Yeats and several other writers that I look at, the impulse to reanimate the dead is tempered by the knowledge that this is either an impossible task or an ethically and aesthetically dangerous one. The reanimated body provides a material figure through which my project sees the past as an unsettled and uncanny composition of multiple 19th century achievements, desires, and most importantly, anxieties. The Victorians were obsessed with resurrection in all its forms. As I mentioned above, historians have uh, noted the resuscitative historical methods that marked a, a kind of really special self-awareness and self-reflexivity of the period. Others have written at length about the Victorian medieval artistic and architectural revival, about experiments with galvanism of the kind that inspired Mary Shelley, about museums that recreated ancient tombs in their modern British rooms, and about seances as religious substitutes for flailing Christianity. While literary studies have fixated on the dead body as a representational conundrum in Victorian poetry and fiction, they fail to see the reanimated body as a negotiation of the historical, aesthetic, technological, and spiritual anxieties of the mid to late 19th century. I try to situate the literary living corpse in its broader cultural context by considering the ways in which writers' acts of reanimation engage and critique the Victorian's broadly humanistic struggle to understand and control the past. The 19th century was fixated, spiritually, technology, biologically, materially, on the idea that death didn't mean final closure. Philippe Aries argues at length in a wide-ranging study called The Hour of Our Death, that the, quote, beautiful death of the 19th century centered on faith in what he says is the restoration in the beyond of what has been temporarily removed or the belief that heaven is one big happy family reunion where people, quote, may prolong their earthly affections for all eternity, end quote. The death of the body meant neither the death of the soul nor the total absence of the material being. And while critics have argued that in Victorian narratives, all death is a kind of closure, the truth is that the mid to late 19th century did everything it could to visibly, scientifically, and emotionally avert the end. The list includes the rise of spiritualism in the 1850s and much more pronouncedly in the 1880s, the passionate debates about cremation and bodily sanctity in the 1870s, the creation of mourning jewelry and memento mori out of the hair of dead loved ones, and the inventions of technologies of reproduction and, and preservation, like the photograph, phonograph, and moving picture, that were both aligned with and somehow capable of surmounting the finality of death. Ghosts weren't simply projections of the imagination. Spiritualism is the belief in the existence of the spirit as a person, one 1861 essay wrote, endowed with mental perceptions and physical force. 
The physical reality of ghosts haunted minds, homes, and especially stories, as the Victorians fantasized about, and even believed in, the possibility that there were ways to secure the shadows of the dead and dying in the world of everyday living. To talk about bodies living again after death, then, is in many ways to talk about all of Victorian literature and culture. There are few, if any, major Victorian writers who don't have at least one restless ghost, uncannily lifelike painting, resurrecting dream, undead monster, spirit-laden vision, well-preserved corpse, or a photographic fetish somewhere in their work. From among this huge corpus of living corpses, I've chosen a murdered wife, a preserved bride-to-be, a wasting young woman gorged on goblin fruit, an Irish bard, a lesbian vampire, a 5,000-year-old mummy, and several others. These come from both England and Ireland, from male and female writers, and from poems, novels, and short stories. My project begins with a murdered wife, telling us the story of her murder in The Ring in the Book, the Browning poem that I mentioned earlier. This 12-book murder poem, each book of which tells the same story in a different character's voice, imagine 600 pages of that, <laughs> begins by insisting that the poet's work is to resuscitate rather than to create, to start the dead alive, but not to make out of nothing, as God can make. The poem, which draws its tale of 17th century deception, murder, and execution from a book of documents that Browning found in a bookstall in Florence, explicitly conceives the relationship between history and poetry as an effort of reanimation. As the poem recasts this relationship in turn, as the relationship between the dead and the living, between old forms and modern innovation, and between facts and art, the notion that poetry can do as much, but only just as much, as reanimating the dead, becomes a way for Browning to theorize a modern poetics that remembers but refuses to be bound by the past. The argument that this initial chapter introduces that the reanimated body incarnates art's potentially transcendent relationship to the scraps of history, as well as the crushing limitations of that relationship, is the driving force behind the rest of my project. I continue with Charles Dickens's novel, Great Expectations, and its creepy would-be bride, Miss Havisham, who's kept every rotting thing in her home and on her body exactly the same since she was jilted at the altar, at the altar decades ago. I argue that her garishly embodied preservation of a long-dead past is Dickens's way of showing how artificial and how very gothic the creation of biographical history can be. From Miss Havisham, I move to Christina Rossetti's poem, Goblin Market, in which a woman wastes away to nothing after eating dangerous goblin fruit, but is revived by a sister's sacrifice, and to W.B. Yeats's poem, The Wanderings of Oshin, which tells the story of an Irish bard who goes to and returns from the mythological land of the dead. In these poems, death and reanimation enact the exile and the return of particular kinds of historical voices to and from the margins of society, the female voice for Rossetti and the Irish voice for Yeats. I remain in Ireland for the rest of my project, turning first to the Anglo-Irish writer Sheridan Le Fanu and his Gothic novella, Carmilla. In this strangely narrated and implicitly political story about a beautiful lesbian vampire, which was one of Bram Stoker's um, main inspirations for the much more famous Dracula, I argue that the reanimated body becomes a way for Le Fanu to critique the received narratives of Anglo-Irish history that many other critics see him conservatively propounding. I then finally turn to Stoker himself, 
although I sidestepped Dracula in favor of a later mummy novel called The Jewel of Seven Stars. In this novel, a group of British Egyptologists bring the mummy of a 5,000-year-old Egyptian queen back to England in order to, what else, resurrect her in the basement of their country home. An effort which succeeds, but with predictably disastrous consequences. I end my dissertation with this book because it explicitly presents the reanimated mummy both as a piece of art and as an embodiment of colonial history. The novel's devastating ending leaves us with a, with a question that's integral to my project as a whole. How damaging can a work of art become if the historical scraps from which it emerges aren't actually the artists to bring back from the dead? I follow an arc from writers engaging with personal and aesthetic history to those besieged by political history, from writers who fantasize about violently controlling stories of the past to those critiquing the violence of historical appropriation. By tracing what I've discovered is a surprisingly short path from a murdered English wife to a resurrected Irish mummy. I've learned that the reanimated corpse, lurching though it may be, always sparks to life in the clash between domination and resistance, between devotion and self-determination, and between the pressures of cultural history and the endurance of personal identity. Thanks very much. fascinating and I, I'd never thought of it like this before but in the light of the other question is, is Eugene Rayburn and our mutual friend and is he perhaps a, a man one of the very few men I mean I'd never thought of him as being a living corpse at the end of the novel but in the light of everything you've been saying you know the fact that he's brought out of the water and he's really only kind of half alive after that I mean is he is he one of your figures yeah, absolutely. I mean, Our Mutual Friend is, is one of those great Dickens novels that begins with a corpse being hauled out of the water and, you know, the corpses of a man who is supposedly dead but turns out to not, in fact, be dead. But the novel itself is very interested in the idea of reanimation and the idea of, kind of bringing back to life as a, as a 
as a cleansing possibility, as a way to escape history. And um, it's an novel that's of particular interest to me because Great Expectations, which, which is the center of one of my chapters, was written right between A Tale of Two Cities, which is a novel that begins with a chapter called Recalled to Life and is about somebody being, um, being rescued from the Bastille when the Bastille falls and, and returning this man to life. So A Tale of Two Cities was written before Great Expectations and Our Mutual Friend was written right after. And I think that Dickens is really interested in, in all of the different ways that reanimation can work and is much more explicit about it in, in those two novels um, in which Great Expectations is sandwiched. Um, but yeah, Eugene Rayburn and, and Our Mutual Friend as a whole is, is a particularly interesting novel to me. So I thank you for, for bringing it up. Thank you, Renee. That was wonderful, predictably. Uh, I wonder, do you have anything to say about our continued cultural fascination with reanimated corpses? Or it's not just the Victorians, it seems to me. Why are we not done with the undead? I think we love the undead. I think the undead is very sexy to us. Um, and I was thinking about this, um, I don't know if anybody noticed, but just about uh, the year 2000, suddenly an explosion of television shows and Buffy and Angel and um, various other shows about vampires just sprung onto the air. And it, it seemed to me that there's something about the, the anxiety of a change of century and all of the different technological advances that suddenly were, were flooding into the world that really inspires people to go back to these old Gothic tropes and continue to rethink them and reimagine them for whatever the contemporary moment happens to be. Um, I think it intrigues us. I mean, I think that we are endlessly fascinated with the idea that maybe death doesn't have to happen, or maybe something happens after death, or maybe there's some other interesting possibility out there. And I think that that idea, while it fascinates us, also terrifies us. And that's why we get these monstrous figures that are both dangerous and incredibly alluring and sexy coming, coming out of as many different entertainment possibilities as we have. So that was a picture of Spike that you had in your cubicle? Um, yeah. I was actually more of an of a Angel fan myself. <laughs> Thank you for that interesting talk. Um, you mentioned a, a number of different kinds of bodies that were actually reanimated, um, including uh, historical forms, architecture, for instance. You talked about the medieval museums. Um, uh, literary models, um, just revival of the classics during the Victorian period, um, and as well as just customs about the body. You mentioned in passing the memento mori custom of cutting the hair, which comes from um, antiquity. I'm wondering, did the Victorians have different sort of responses to these different kinds of bodies in terms of how they actually could be reanimated or to what, uh, what sort of ethical questions could actually be posed for distinct kinds of bodies? Um, could you comment more on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that depending on, as you say, depending on what kind of reanimation was taking place, um, there were there were different different senses of the okayness of that. I mean, as far as something like the architectural revival goes, um, I don't really know that there were any ethical questions that that were present there. As far as something like um, Something like literary forms, there was all sorts of anxiety about 
for Browning in particular, who um, who interests me um, as a Victorian, who was very influenced by and also very anxious about his relationship to Romantic poets and Romantic forms. Um, Browning was very concerned about how to negotiate the space between um, between being very heavily influenced by Shelley and breaking out into new ideas and new formal poetics and new possibilities for what could be written about in poetry. And I think that Browning is one of those writers who has reanimated bodies all over his his set of poems. I mean, if you kind of if you go through an anthology of Browning and and start reading, it's just corpse after corpse after corpse, and they're usually coming back to life in some way. Um, as far as questions like like cremation and all of the all of the issues about burial ground reform in the 19th century. I mean, the, the issue that was primarily at stake in the question of whether or not bodies should be legally allowed to be, should be legally allowed to be cremated in the 19th century was that there was a sense that nobody quite knew what exactly was going to come back to life on, on the last, at the last judgment. You know, was it going to be spirits that didn't need bodies or were a bunch of corpses actually going to rise out of the ground and need to, you know, walk off to, to wherever they were going to walk off to? And people were really concerned that if they started burning bodies, even if graveyards were throwing such terrible pollution into the air that people were getting sick and dying even more, that, bur that burning those bodies would, would prevent all important things from happening in the future, you know, would completely um, destroy all biblical predictions. So, so there were all sorts of questions like that that were, that were happening. Is this a specifically British phenomenon? When I try to think of American literature of the period or French literature of the period, and although I've not haven't looked at them for this particular phenomenon, I don't find a lot of examples, and so I wondered if there's something specifically British about this. I think you find a few examples. I'm I'm particularly interested in in the British and Irish side of things, in which I think there are far more examples. I mean, Gautier has a, has mummy stories, and um, you know, and, and Edgar Allan Poe certainly has you know strange strange bodies returning to life. But I think that a lot of what's happening in the British literature is that there are, especially from 1860 onward, a lot of these these um, novels and poems that I'm talking about are really infused with with questions of British Empire and questions of Social Darwinism and actual Darwinism and contact with, you know, with savages in in places in the empire and um, and I'm really concerned with with how the British and how British bodies are going to survive these moments of contact and what kinds of hybrid forms are going to come out of of all of the forced contact that the empire is is demanding. Um, and I think especially if you're moving towards the end of the 19th century, when you get to novels like Dracula and The Jewel of Seven Stars um, and Carmilla, that, that these books in particular are, are thinking about the reanimated body or thinking about you know, the monstrous body as, as a body that is the result of whatever is going on in the empire and whatever is happening to the British in relation to the, the people that they're conquering and trying to absorb into their own national sensibility. Right. I'm going to thank our scholars.